Good morning, brothers and sisters. Today I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. You can find the passage in page 5 of your worship folder or on page 807 of the Pew Bible in front of you. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You may be seated. Thank you, brother. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Hill. I suppose uh, this is why not every sermon should go verse by verse. (laughs) Can you imagine a 17-week sermon series on the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1? That sure bring the crowds in. Um, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob, Judah, and his brothers, sermon 1. However, though we should not and will not go through these parts of the Bible slowly and certainly not verse by verse... It is important, I think, that we look at them, especially at Christmas. See, one of the greatest questions that uh, I find uh, that uh, people like you and I and people that we know have about Christmas today is the question, is it real? That is. We wonder whether the Christmas story really makes any difference in any kind of down-to-earth way. Christmas comes, Christmas goes, we enjoy it, we like the lights, we like the presents, but is it real? Is it true? 
There is then, it seems to me, not so much a war on Christmas, which some parts of the media love to trump up as if we care what color Starbucks chooses for its coffee cups, as a sort of blah about Christmas. It doesn't make any difference. Is it real? Is it true? I'm a bit of a Doctor Who fan, uh, perhaps not a Whovian, as I hear the superfans are called, but I like some of the shows. And one Christmas version has a story where Santa Claus appeared as a dream, but a helpful rescuing dream. For some of us, Christmas is a bit like that. Not true, not real, but still comforting. But you see, this is where Matthew's genealogy, this list of names here, helps. It shows us that the message of Christmas can have an impact in a real down-to-earth way. And so, this weekend, we are centering around four down-to-earth stories that show us how Jesus really can be our Savior King this Christmas. Four down-to-earth stories that show us how Jesus really can be our Savior King. First, I'll briefly tell us uh, those four down-to-earth stories that this genealogy is intended to reveal. Second, I will then show how these stories can make us see how Jesus really can be our Savior King this Christmas. First then, four down-to-earth stories. Now, Before we get to those stories, we have to understand something about genealogies, otherwise you'll think I'm just picking out the stories at random, and really I'm not. It's the intention of the passage. These genealogies, these long lists of names in the Bible, they are not a family tree or just a way to trace all your ancestors without exception. They're actually quite selective. They adjust, uh, for instance, for what are known as leveret marriages, where when the father dies, the brother marries the wife to preserve the family, and they tell a story. They're more like a storyboard that you put together before you shoot a movie than an ancestral database. And each storyboard depicts a fuller movie scene that will take place, you know, once the actual movie is shot. Same here. These names represent stories, characters. They're telling a narrative that are sending a message. And here we will see, if we notice carefully, this list is designed specifically to highlight four stories that are particularly down to earth to show us how Jesus really can be our Savior King. Now, all of that is why it's a bit of a mistake when we begin to understand genealogies, why it's a mistake to get all hung up about the differences between this genealogy in Matthew and the one in Luke. The easiest answer for the differences is that beginning with David, Matthew traces the paternal line of descent through Solomon, while Luke traces the maternal line through Nathan, Solomon's brother. 
But the point is that this genealogy, like all genealogies, has a message to it. Now, before I briefly tell you those stories here, let me give you a couple of examples that show that this is how genealogies work in the Bible from some other genealogies. There's a couple of them. The first genealogy in the Bible is actually the beginning of the making of heaven and earth. So the idea of genealogy in the Bible is broader than mere immediate direct descent. It's about origin, beginning, about the backstory to something important. And then even, you know, son of does not always mean direct descendant. It has a broader meaning than that. Forebear, son-in-law, the son of David, Jesus is the son of David, not direct descent. Son of can include great-great-grandson, it can include adoption, legal, inheritor to the royal throne. Or then, uh, just one other example from the Bible, another genealogy. The second genealogy in the Bible does have a long list of names, but the story of it, the message of it, is uh, found in the repeated refrain that occurs, like a, a drumbeat. And he died, and he died, and he died. Of course, the message then is that in this post-fall sinful world, death happens. But then in the middle of the genealogy, hope pointing to new life is Enoch, who did not die, like a single star twinkling in the inky black night sky. Now, this genealogy is obviously structured around three fourteens. That was so nicely brought out, as you heard it read so well by Dr. Hill a moment ago. And we have to think about that because some critics say that, well, not all the fourteens are literally fourteen. And so they claim it as evidence, another piece of evidence, that the Bible's not real or true. However, the variation in literal numbers is either because in ancient times people would count both inclusively and exclusively, sometimes switching between the two, or because Jeconiah, verse 11, is rightly counted twice, referring to two different people. You see, Jeconiah was also known as Jehoiakim, and Josiah, his father, had a son called Jehoiakim, who was the father of Jehoiakim or Jeconiah. Now, some say Matthew just confused the names, or that a later scribe did. But in 2 Kings 24, verse 6, in the Greek version, Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim are both called Jehoiakim. They were Jehoiakim senior and junior. And so, well, Matthew uses the alternative name Jeconiah of them both, and that is your extra generation. And so this 14 structure is designed to show that Jesus is the royal king because the numerical value assigned to the name David in Hebrew is 14. But then the genealogy is also structured around Abraham, son of David, yes, but also son of Abraham, beginning and end of the list. And so while this is a story of Jesus as the king in David's line, it's also a story of him fulfilling the calling of Abraham to bless all nations 
So Jesus is the Savior King. Matthew picks this up very quickly in his gospel, verse 23, right after this. He is God with us. And at the end of Matthew, Jesus is with us as his gospel goes out through his disciples to take that message of the Savior King to all nations. And so here briefly are those uh, four stories designed to show us how Jesus can be our Savior King. Here they are, the women, the missing generations, Manasseh, and Babylon. Now you see, for women at all to be included in an ancient genealogy is very unusual because women at the time were not thought to provide legal authority. But uh, these are not just any kind of women. They are the most controversial women you could possibly discover in the scriptures. Tamar seduced her father-in-law. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was a foreigner. And of course, Uriah's wife, well, that's Bathsheba, with whom David committed adultery. And so it's very clear what Matthew is saying. Yes, Jesus is king. Yes, he has authority. But what kind of king is this? A savior king. The marginalized, the oppressed, the foreigner kept at a distance. Women who were excluded by others. A husband jilted, cuckolded, murdered. Are all honorably mentioned in the list of forebears of Jesus. Matthew's genealogy is the DNA that defeats legalism. So let me ask us this, how are we doing as a church at honoring those that the hypocritical morality of our day dishonors? When someone is in Christ, the old has gone, the new is here, the slate is wiped clean. And while discipleship and accountability are necessary, there is no shame. Here is the DNA that defeats legalism. What about those missing generations? Well, if you're very, very observant, you would notice that from Jeram to Isaiah, there are actually three missing generations and indeed kings. Uh, Jonathan Edwards describes the reason for these missing generations like this. Here, three generations are omitted that descended from Athaliah, the daughter of Jezebel. That is, Ahaziah and Joash and Amaziah. Thus, God has been pleased to judge that wicked woman and the sin of Jehoram in marrying her to the fourth generation, they being blotted out of the records of Christ's family and omitted as if they never had been. Thus the name of the wicked rots. So again, the message in Matthew is clear. If the inclusion of those four controversial women who others had excluded tells us that Jesus is Savior of sinners, the exclusion of the three generations of kings tells us that however powerful, however royal, however wealthy, 
the wicked will not stand unless they repent. Rahab was a prostitute, but she trusted God and saved the spies of Jericho. Ruth was a foreigner, but she bound herself to God's people. Wicked kings, powerful people, be assured Jesus is the Savior, but he is also the King. You must repent if you are to be saved. Now again, let me ask ourselves this. How are we doing as a church when it comes to speaking truth to power? Will we have the chutzpah to stand up against the powerful elite of our day and tell them to their face with grace but truth when they are wrong? Or if you listen to Matthew's genealogy, we will. And then there is Manasseh. You see, those who disagree with the previous interpretation as to why those three kings are omitted point to Manasseh, a truly evil king whose name remains in the record. Manasseh was indeed a bad man. But he repented. The Bible tells us that It says, in his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Perhaps you are a Manasseh. You have done terrible things. You are suffering the consequences. It's not too late. The story is not yet over. Humble yourself. Turn to God. He will hear your plea. And then the final story is the uh, deportation, as it's uh, called itself. It's like a structural hinge that opens up a profound question or two in this uh, genealogy. You see, God's people have been sent into exile, the deportation, because of their idolatry. They had worshipped false gods. Their city had been sacked, their people victimized, their heritage trampled underfoot, they were refugees, sent far from God's presence. How will God bring his people back from exile in Babylon as he promised he would do? And having brought them back, how would he now bring Babylon out of his people? Purify for himself a people for his own possession. Fulfill all the great promises of the prophets of an international movement worshipping God. And so this deportation is is a backstory that poses a profound question to which Matthew's story of Jesus is the gospel answer. 
And so the message this weekend is four down-to-earth stories that show us how Jesus really can be our Savior King. We've seen the movie storyboard of these four stories. The women, those scandalous women, the missing generations, Manasseh, the deportation. First, four down-to-earth stories that second Show us how Jesus really can be our Savior King. Now, what did those uh, women who are honored by their inclusion in the list of Jesus' forebears, uh, Manasseh as well, what did they have that the missing generations did not have? What will rescue God's people from exile? How can Jesus be our Savior King really truly this Christmas? It starts with real faith. All of us have faith. It just depends in whom or in what we place that faith. I was moved to discover recently that after the tragedy that occurred a couple weeks ago or so in Paris, um, one man, as the crowds gathered to mourn, towed a piano to the front of the crowd and began to play. It was a beautiful moment witnessing to the, the power of music and community spirit and all the rest. But I was also struck by the choice of the song. It was John Lennon's Imagine. Now, I like that song as much as the next person. And, uh, uh, and, but the words of that song Ask us to imagine how wonderful life would be if there was no heaven, no hell, no God, and we all just got along. Imagine all the people living in harmony. And so the faith of that man at the piano was being placed in a vision of life where the answer is to get rid of faith in God and place it in humans. Now, given the twisted evil ideology of the people who committed that atrocity, John Lennon's vision of a world of peace is an understandable choice for an anthem. But the irony of it is that he was asking us to put our faith in humanity. The very humans who had recently massacred other humans. Now there's no one who does not have faith. Where will you place yours? In a God who brutalizes others? In your own power to redeem yourself or in the Jesus of the Bible who is the Savior King. See, this faith in Jesus is not a one-time event any more than marriage is a one-time event. You have a wedding, but then you have a marriage where the vows you made are renewed each day as you place your faith in each other. So would you, hearing these four stories, understanding how even this genealogy speaks truly of the Savior King, would you then confidently, assuredly, again, place your faith, even in this contemporary world, in the Savior, King Jesus. It starts with faith, that this Jesus will accept us, even us, and then it goes to honesty, truth in the innermost parts. Repentance of known sin. If Tamar can be honored in Jesus' family, if David, adulterer and murderer, can be honored, if Manasseh can be redeemed, it's not too late for you or your loved ones. The key 
is honest repentance. The difference between us is not whether or not we sin, it is whether or not we are honest about our sin. New York Times journalist David Brooks put it like this, Sin, when it is committed over and over again, hardens into a loyalty to a lower love. But it does more than harden us, it blinds us. Psychologist Daniel Kahneman said, We have an almost unlimited ability to ignore our own ignorance. So when I talk of repentance and sin, I'm not attempting, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad. It's a call for honesty, integrity, truth in the innermost parts. The key is honest repentance. The difference between us is not whether or not we sin, it's whether or not we are honest about our sin. So would you, in view of these stories that speak of this Savior King, bow in repentance before Jesus as your King in full Joyful confidence that he is your savior. It starts with faith. It goes to an honest appraisal before the savior king. And it leads to investing our lives in the progress of the gospel. Matthew begins with this genealogy of Jesus' forebears. And he ends with Jesus' commission to make disciples of all nations. So now the gospel, which was foretold and has a backstory of God's grace, fulfilled in Christ, this gospel now goes to all nations through the willing, joyful commitment of Jesus' disciples making other disciples. So would you then... Read your Bible this Christmas. I'm putting online a daily devotional this Advent leading up to Christmas. That's just one tool that you could use to read your Bible. Would you then commit to a small group this Christmas? Would you commit to give generously of your resources for the sake of this Savior King this Christmas? Would you invite someone to the Christmas Eve services this Christmas? One of the best and easiest opportunities to invite someone to church during the whole year. Believe in the Jesus of the Bible, repent of known sin, and invest your life in the progress of the gospel. That's how Jesus can really be your Savior King this Christmas. The Savior King revealed in these four remarkable stories in this genealogy. Families are interesting things, aren't they? Uh, One of my ancestors served in um, both World War I and World War II. And he received some medals for his actions during uh, combat. But he was seriously affected Uh, by those wars and probably would have had what we now call post-traumatic stress disorder. His family was impacted by the resulting pain that he felt. He had a large number of children who, while dutiful in church attendance as people were in those days, were, I believe, all over the map in terms of real faith. One went to Oxford a good school, I am told, 
And while he was there, someone invited him to hear a message about Christ. Perhaps it was at Christmas. And he started to follow Jesus. He soon afterwards had a conversation with his sister, my mother, and asked her if she would like to follow Jesus. She did. One by one, that family fell before the thunderous, loving grace of the Savior King. One of the last to hold out was my uncle, an ambassador in various countries, who finally came to faith when a terrorist shot and killed his double, who was taking his car to work that day as they shifted their journey arrangements in standard security procedures. I don't know what the story of your family is. I do know this. Single people. You can join the DNA of the family of Christ to leave a legacy behind of people you have discipled that will bless thousands. A single man you have never heard of, witnessed to and discipled a man called John Stodd whose legacy, if not his physical family, remains. And I know this. Families. If you align your faith with the Jesus of the Bible, if you repent and ask for his forgiveness, if you give yourself to the cause of Christ, Jesus really will be your Savior King this Christmas. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you that you are the Savior King. We bow before your authority. And we are wooed by your grace. Accept us sinners, we plea, for the sake of the Savior King Jesus. And this Christmas, we pray, give us great joy as we give our lives to the cause of that Savior King and his kingdom. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.